Well, we turn now to our introduction in systematic theology. And today we are finishing up the doctrine of Scripture by looking at our two final attributes, the perspicuity of Scripture and the finality of Scripture. Lord willing, Assistant Pastor JP will begin a new doctrine next Lord's Day with the doctrine of God. Well, first, let's look at the attribute of perspicuity. Now, there's a, weird, there's a word you don't hear very often. What is meant by the word perspicuity? Well, this word derives from a Latin word, which means to see through. It is something that is clear, something that is free from obscurity. Sometimes you will find this attribute is called the attribute of clarity. And so what, are we, what we are claiming today is that the Bible is clear to understand. There is a clarity to it. Now, that may shock a few people to hear, considering how hard some of the Bible can be to understand. Also, in light of the fact that many who read and study it can't seem to agree on what it's saying. Are we claiming that the Bible is equally clear in all of its parts? Also, I've heard it said, mainly by unbelievers, but I've also heard some professing uh, Christians argue this, that the Bible was not meant to be understood, evidenced by the fact that there's so many people that disagree on it. I mean, we have all these hundreds of denominations. Well, is that a valid argument? And if not, what do we do with all these people who read it and study it, but just can't seem to understand it rightly and agree with one another? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith lays this attribute out for us in chapter 1, paragraph 7. It states, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due sense of ordinary means, may attain into a sufficient understanding of them. Well, first, I want you to notice that the confession acknowledges that Scripture is not equally plain in all of its parts. It recognizes the reality that there are some parts in the Bible that may be difficult to understand. Now, what's interesting about this admission is that the divines didn't just simply argue this based on their own experience, but they actually proved this assertion from the Bible itself. And I think that's very important because if they just merely argued it from their experience, someone could come along and say, well, Mr. Westminster Divine, it may be difficult for you, but it's not difficult for me because you just don't get it. No, their assertion is proven by Scripture itself. Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16. There Peter writes, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, that is the coming of the Lord in the new heavens and earth, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures." Now that phrase there, hard to understand, is the translation of a single Greek word, and it means, well, just that. It's hard or it's difficult to understand. It's important to know here that, that though Peter did not say that there, he didn't say there were some things in Paul's writing that are impossible to understand, but rather hard to understand. In other words, there are some things in Scripture that require a person to make a great effort 
to understand. Now, you've got to make some effort to understand any of it, but some things require greater effort. And keep in mind, this, this is Peter say, saying this. This is the Apostle Peter. Peter was Jewish. He was an apostle. Peter walked and talked with our Lord in person for many years. Peter was not 2,000 years removed and living in an entirely different culture than ours today. And so personally, I find this text encouraging. Now, some of you might find that weird. Some of you might find this text discouraging. But I find it encouraging because I can't tell you how many times I have found myself reading and uh, studying the Bible and scratching my head at times, wondering what in the world does this mean? Almost to the point to where I want to give up. And though I may take a temporary break from it, I don't ultimately give up because I know what Peter said. He said there are going to be some things that are difficult. Some things are going to require more effort on our part to understand, but it's not impossible to understand. And that's the part that encourages me. If Peter had said that there are some things that you're never ever going to understand because they're impossible to understand, then well, I would be more inclined to give up. But thankfully, that's not what he said. He said, there are some things hard to understand. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now, if one were a little uncertain about that single Greek word that is translated as hard to understand, as to whether or not it means merely difficult or impossible, the rest of what Peter says clears it up for us. Notice how he describes those who twist those hard-to-understand parts of Paul. He says they are untaught and unstable. To be untaught is to be unschooled or to lack schooling. It's to be ignorant. It's to be unlearned. Now, if Peter had said that there are some things that are impossible to understand, why would he just pick on the unlearned and unschooled people? That wouldn't make any sense because if things were impossible to understand, then nobody would get it, whether you were schooled or not. Again, this highlights the fact that here Peter is not talking about things that are impossible to understand, but just hard to understand, things that take great effort. And if I may, let me just say a little thing here about Bible colleges, seminaries, and formal education. Oftentimes you will find people, especially on a platform like Facebook, taking jabs at colleges and seminaries, probably because they know somebody who went off to college or seminary and they came back in worse shape than when they left. And this does indeed happen. I know a few people like that. They started off somewhat sound, orthodox, and they came back from seminary teaching all types of heresy and nonsense. But rather than trace the root of the problem to the type of education they received and from whom they received it, these critics go on to blast all seminaries and colleges. And then some of them will go on to say things like, well, I don't need college or seminary. I can read the Bible for myself. But then when you start to dig a little bit deeper with these people as to what they believe, you find out that they're just as bad, if not worse, than the guy who went off the seminary. One of the last guys I heard talking like this was a universalist, Unitarian hyperpredist. I mean, how much worse can you get? Beloved, it's true that a person does not necessarily need an education from a recognized college or seminary in order to be qualified. But do not take that to mean, then, that a person does not need an education. Do not take that to mean that you won't have to work and work hard at interpreting Scripture rightly. I know people who have never gone to seminary and have a very good grasp of the Bible as a whole, but they labored at it for years. 
and they didn't isolate themselves from other teachers. It wasn't just them and their Bible in a closet for a few days. I'm reminded of what was said of John and Peter in Acts chapter 4. There it says, When they, that is the rulers, elders, scribes, and the high priests, saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized they had been with Jesus. The words used here to describe John and Peter convey this sense of being unlettered, lacking a formal authorized education. You could say in some sense that these were two guys who didn't get their degrees from the local seminary. But notice they also realized that they had been with Jesus. They weren't ignorant. They weren't unschooled. They weren't uneducated. It may, not, it may have been an informal education, but it was an education nonetheless. And so there is some wiggle room for how exactly one gets their education. But what is not in question here is whether you need an education or not. Being untaught is not a virtue. It's not a good thing here in 2 Peter 3. It is a lack of education that has people twisting the Bible, which in turn misleads and deceives them and to those they speak to, and in the end brings destruction to all involved. Peter also describes them as unstable, that is weak. They are not firmly fixed or set. They're like those in Ephesians 4, whom Paul describes as they're tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And notice here in Ephesians 4 what Paul gives as the remedy for this unstableness. If you go back up to verse 11, he says, And he himself, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, gave to the church some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Beloved, there are some things in Scripture that are going to be hard for you to grasp but not necessarily as hard for another person to grasp. Our confession reflects it this way when it says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. And so Christ gifts certain men with the ability to wrap their minds around more difficult matters and in turn make what is difficult easier for others to swallow. We need each other, and in particular, we need pastors and teachers to help equip and edify the body. Beloved, truth matters, doctrine matters, education matters, assembling with the saints matters, pastors and teachers matter. These are not things that we can neglect nor take lightly without bringing ruin upon ourselves and others. You need to stay away from those Lone Ranger Christians out there on Facebook and Twitter, and I imagine this is really ramping up here lately, who will belittle the church, belittle pastors and teachers and education, and yet they waste no time running their mouths all day long as self-proclaimed experts only to lead people into destruction. Well, after stating that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves nor alike clear unto all, the divines go on to say this, Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due sense of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. 
The psalmist states in Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then down in verse 130, The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. I love what Robert Raymond says here. He says, While the confession acknowledges that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in of themselves, nor clear unto all, the confession affirms again against Rome that those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned, and Raymond adds even the unlearned unbeliever, in a due sense of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Note that the confession declares that unlearned men through the utilization of ordinary means may come to a knowledge of the truth of Scripture. So what are these ordinary means? Simply the reading, hearing, and study of the word. For example, one does not need to be learned when reading the Gospels or hearing them read or proclaimed to discover that they intend to teach that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, performed mighty miracles, died on a cross as a ransom for many, and rose from the dead on the third day after death. These things are plain, lying on the very face of the Gospels. One does not need to be instructed by a preacher to learn that he must believe on Jesus in order to be saved from the penalty his sins deserve. And this includes the unbeliever who is certainly capable of following an argument. All one needs to do in order to discover these things, to put it plainly, is to sit down in a fairly comfortable chair, open the Gospels, and with a good reading lamp, read the Gospels like he would any other book. Of course, if one believes these things to be true, leading to the salvation of his soul, another factor has intruded itself into the situation. What the confession has already described is both the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts, and as the inward illumination of the Spirit of God, end quote. So there's a couple of things I want to note here. First, notice that while there are some things that are hard to understand, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are not hard to understand for anyone who in a due sense of the ordinary means can arrive at understanding. Now a person, as I said, still has to work, mind you. They have to read or hear and they have to study. You can't expect to know anything by doing nothing. But when it comes to those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation, one may not need to work as hard as they would with other things. And what this says to us then is that there is in fact things in Scripture that are plain and obvious despite what anyone else says about it. I point this out because remember earlier I talked about the skeptics who want to argue that the Bible was never meant to be understood and this is evidenced by the fact that there are so many people that disagree on what it says. And I asked the question, is this a valid argument? Well, no. The answer is it's not a valid argument. It does not logically follow that the Bible is unclear or impossible to understand or even contradictory just because people's understanding of it may be unclear or contradictory. If that were the case, then you might as well not read any writing. You might as well not listen to anyone speak or watch any movies or listen to any songs or pay any attention to what that unbeliever is saying because all of these things are subject to being misunderstood or twisted by people. I was reminded one morning at work, a co-worker and I were waiting at a truck stop for another driver, and while we waited, somehow we got to talking about the Bible, and he literally fought against everything I had to say about the Bible, because according to him, the fact that we have so many denominations 
proves that the Bible is incapable of being understood. So he wasn't going to listen to me either. So I asked him the question. I said, have you ever been misunderstood? Maybe your wife has misunderstood you at some point, a child. Has that ever happened to you? And he was like, yeah, a number of times. And so I said, okay, if that's the case, then why am I listening to you now? And he got a little quiet. He didn't know what to say. And so I continued. Look, just because your wife may have misunderstood you at some point in time doesn't necessarily mean that you were unclear. Perhaps you were unclear, or perhaps you were clear and she was distracted and wasn't listening to you carefully. The point is, there are a number of possibilities that can explain why your wife didn't get it. It does not necessarily follow, logical inference, that she didn't get it because you were unclear. Raymond writes, as a logical corollary to the Bible's representation of its revelatory and inspired nature, the purpose of this entire activity on God's part was to reveal his ways and works in a comprehensible manner to those to whom this revelation originally came. He spoke and wrote in order to be understood, and the prophets, apostles, and indeed Jesus himself addressed their messages to all the people and never treated them as intellectual pygmies who were incapable of understanding anything of what they said, end quote. Well, amen. And beloved, the fact that there are those out there who seem to be incapable of understanding anything that the Bible says does not negate this fact. Some people just don't listen very well. Some people don't read very well. And some people just simply don't care to study to any degree, and yet they expect to learn, I guess by osmosis or something. But the slowness or laziness of some people doesn't reflect on the Bible. Again, as Peter stated, the unlearned and unstable twist the hard sayings of Paul, just as they do the rest of Scripture. These people will twist the hard and the easy stuff to understand, because the problem lies with them, not with God's Word. Well, let's conclude this attribute of perspicuity or clarity, and now finish off with the attribute of finality. For this, let's again turn to chapter 1 of the Confession and look at paragraphs 8 and 10. 8 says, quote, The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by a singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who might have right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation into which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. And then in um, paragraph 10, states the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. Raymond writes, no attribute of scripture is more significant than its attribute of finality for this attribute is the Bible's response to the burning question of our day. What should be our final authority in all religious controversy? The confession declares that in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal 
unto the Old and New Testaments in their original languages of Hebrew and Greek, respectively. John Murray quite properly notes that the confessional expression of scriptural, uh, scriptural finality here is oriented, admittedly, to the refutation of Rome's appeal to church tradition and the living voice of God in the person of the Roman pontiff, on the one hand, and to the claim of special revelation by means of a mystical inner light on the other. But its teaching militates equally against the claims of Islam respecting the Quran and the Mormon claims respecting the Book of Mormon. Isaiah in chapter 8 writes, quote, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. In Acts 15, we see the example of a dispute arising among the brothers. There were some believers who were of the sect of the Pharisees who argued that it's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Well, now in verse 6, we read that the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take them out of a, to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then James goes on to quote the scripture from the prophet Amos, who said, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So we see here in Acts 15 a very clear example of Scripture of how the church settled a dispute by a final appeal to Scripture and displeased the apostles and the elders along with the whole church to send messengers along with a letter to settle the minds of those who had been troubled by these Pharisees. The Scripture gave the final word over all other things over the opinions of certain Pharisees, and even over the experiences and testimonies of men. And in light of everything we have said in this series thus far, regarding the necessity of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the authority of Scripture and its self-authentication, as well as the sufficiency of Scripture, it's not hard to understand why the Scripture would have the last and final word. Again, notice the last words of paragraph 10 in the Confession. It says, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Here you see all of these attributes finally come together to a head in this attribute of finality. 
One, we need the scripture because men contradict one another and they create controversy, thus creating a need for us to go to something else. Two, the scripture is distinguished from all other forms of communication because the Holy Spirit speaks in them, hence the inspiration of scripture. Third, the scripture has ultimate authority and settles all matters because they are God's authentic voice and there is no authority greater than God's. And the full assurance of that is made certain in our hearts by that same Holy Spirit. Fourth, the Bible is sufficient, that is, it is adequate to settle these controversies in contrast to the varied opinions of men who often contradict themselves, thus making any final appeal to them impossible. And fifth, the Bible doesn't add more fuel to the fires that are created by contradictory men due to a confused and contradictory message of its own, but it puts out those fires. And this is only possible because the Bible is clear in what it teaches. Well, I'll close with these final words from Robert Raymond. He says, These then are the attributes of Scripture with which the Westminster Assembly of Divines believed could be legitimately affirmed on the basis of the Scripture's self-testimony. Liberal and neo-Orthodox theologians alike have often charged that to ascribe these properties to Scripture is to ascribe to the finite creature perfections properly belonging only to the Creator, and this is to commit blasphemy. Moreover, such reverence as this ascription entails is an act of worship, and this is to commit idolatry, more specifically, bibliolatry. How shall we respond to these charges, asked Raymond? Well, besides pointing out to these critics that an infallible Bible is the only basis upon which they can know for sure what perfections properly belong to God in the first place, I would say two further things. First, because the Bible is God's word, it would necessarily partake of the indefectibility of God. Far from this being blasphemy, I would urge that not to ascribe to God's word the perfection of God's truth is to commit blasphemy. And second, no evangelical has ever worshipped the Bible. Rather, he reverences it because it is God's word and hence the only true light on the path that leads to the one triune God. Such reverence is not bibliolatry. It is simply the honor properly due the word of the living God whose word it is. And so while it is true that evangelicals seek the Lord who lives beyond the sacred page, it is equally true that they seek the Lord through a study of the sacred pages of his word, which came to them from the world which they have not yet seen, yet, uh, or not yet seen except with eyes of faith, end quote. So there we see it all come together beautifully. And if there's one thing, I definitely hope that you get out of this series, this little mini-series within a series on the doctrine of Scripture, is how all these attributes work together, and to attack one is to attack the rest of them. Well, I'll conclude there.